Hey, what is going on? Eric Bach here with the Look Right Naked podcast. And today joining me is Coach Lee Boyce, not influencer, coach. Lee is a professor and advisory board for Men's Health Magazine, Strong Fitness Magazine, internationally published writer, and author of Strength Training for All Body Types. Lee has been a coach for going on 16 years, and he excels in bridging the gap between performance and making knowledge simple and straightforward, both educating coaches and helping people get in the best shape of their lives. On this wide-ranging discussion, we discuss everything from getting started in the fitness industry and the importance of sports in his development, but also how to enter the gym and feel fully confident in what you're doing, regardless of what else is going on around you and how the gym brings us all together. From there, we dig into the nuts and bolts of training. What changes he made after tearing both of his patellar tendons directly playing basketball at age 30 and how he needed to adjust his training and how it helps him now communicate the adjustments you need to make specifically in your workouts as you're getting older. Finally, we jumped into something very important discussing the differences in training. We have somebody who's a tall lifter with longer arms, longer legs, and how it's not going to be the same as some of the things that you're seeing on social media. Having this information is absolutely crucial, not only to helping you build the body that you want and looking great naked, but also ensuring your long-term health and longevity so you can stay consistent. Guys, check out this episode. You're going to absolutely love it. Once you do, please hit the share button on either Apple, on Spotify, tag at Coach Lee Boys and at Bach Performance and post that directly on your Instagram stories. And I will select one person and give them over one of my favorite gifts from Legion Athletics to help you optimize your training. Ready? Let's do it. Lee, how, how long have you been coaching? We're at the end of the year now, so going into my 17th year, starting in, I guess, May, June next year. So yeah, the end of my 16th year now. Damn, that's serious. So that means pretty soon you're going to have these broccoli-headed guys over on Instagram that are telling you how to do your job because they've been lifting weights for two or three years, huh? Oh, I've already got that, man. I'm sure you do too. Like that's uh, those are the the chowder heads on Instagram who are the arm seat arm seat specialists and the the couch potato trainers and all that stuff. The the keyboard warriors. So we're we're no stranger to those those stock. And uh, it's funny because it's always people who are punching upwards and never people punching downwards. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know that's actually one of the beautiful things about the fitness industry is like as you get to know people who have stature, if we want to call it that, oftentimes the most open, giving, honest people who are looking to help elevate the industry as a whole and uh, and really help everybody on the way up. Because everybody, just like when you're getting started in the gym, starts from the bottom. You start being absolutely nobody. You have you know no clients, not quite sure what you're doing, maybe some imposter syndrome with that process. And gradually, through building your skills as a coach and working with people, you begin to develop your skills, your relationships, and, and really stack your way to the top. And so 16 years, man, like what, what got you started? Were you a sprinter in university? Is that correct? Yeah, I ran track in university. I was a long jumper as well. Um, so I did that in, in university. Before that, I played every sport imaginable. I was uh, into basketball a lot, football, baseball, track, of course, volleyball. So those were the sports that I played going into university. And then I special, I focused on track and field past high school. So that's what uh, really got me into it. Or it was sort of like a natural progression into the fitness side of things. But I remember to this day, just uh, when I was in the 11th grade and I joined in on a personal training session with a, a hockey friend of mine who, uh, who hired a coach at that young age. And so he was like, you want to come along? And so I did. And I did that one session. I was just so impressed by this trainer and so impressed by just that entire world. So I know that planted the very initial seed, even if I went through phases where I thought that I wanted to do something else and do something else when I was 17, 18 and 19. But uh, yeah, by the time I was in university, I was like, you know what, do I want to work with patients, for example, uh, on a chiro table or do I want to physio or something like that? Or would I rather work with people who aren't acutely injured and be on the, on the athletic side of things? And that's why I chose what I did. And uh, I'm glad that I did. Yeah, similar background. You know, I was an athlete, had a really cool experience with a couple of coaches. I'm like, you know what? I really like this component of it. But, you know, even though I had some injuries, I, I didn't want to just work with people when they're already hurt. How can we prevent that? With your experience as an athlete and then loving the coaching side of it, how did that mature? I mean, because you've been everywhere, man. You've been presenting on the biggest stages. Obviously, you know, we've both been on T Nation and you've been just expanding your reach for years. How did you gradually build up from being an athlete, loving the training aspect to where you are now? You know, it's funny because you'd think that there'd be some kind of like a crazy answer, but it's honestly just sticking with it, number one, and really enjoying what you do. I think that speaks for a lot more than people give it credit for is that like, if you truly have a passion for what it is that you do, then 
certain other things aren't going to matter as much. For example, working pro bono for a possible like, you know, development of opportunities that might come your way later on. Things like that were things that I was very, very um, intent on doing a lot of, especially earlier in, in my career. And uh, they paid off. So when it came to like writing and so on or speaking, that's a great example because a lot of talks and a lot of different presentations and lectures and stuff like that that I did for free, like because I really wanted to and I wanted to help people and I wanted to uh, educate as much as I can and share and um, good things became of it. And it was also a matter of not trying to just be, I, I use the term one hit wonder, just like for an article, for example, like the first time I ever got published was with T Nation back in 2009. And um, my goal after that was, okay, I do not want to just have that one article for my entire repertoire career and then call it a day. No, I want to I want to fight to try to get more in there and try to get published more often in there so that, you know, I can I can say that I have that and also just stay consistent with it and pursue it. So I did. And then after I got in like the second or third time, I was like, OK, I've got to get in there once every month. And I did that. And so it was always just about setting new goals that I was also passionate about pursuing, um, not just for the optics of it and not because it's certain it filled a certain box or whatever, but because this is what I wanted to do. So there has to be something to be said for uh, the, the passion and, and the desire to be in this industry or in whatever pursuit that you're after and um, how important that is for making great things happen. Because, you know, some people think that, for example, if you made $10 million in a year or something like that, but you're doing it, doing a job that you hate, that it wouldn't matter. And it's like, I disagree. I think that I would not like doing that. And I prefer to make modest income with something that I'm very passionate about instead, because that's your whole life right there. Yeah, you spend a lot of time as a coach working in the trenches with people and researching and developing and adjusting and making all those components. And if you are not in love with the process itself, it's very difficult to, frankly, even build a book of business to the point where it is a viable business. And I think a lot of people fizzle out early on because of that. But one thing that you said really stuck with me and is like enjoying what you do is something that's so crucial for you. Being a coach, how do you weave that in with your clients. How, why is that so important? Even when looking at people from the, the fitness component, whether they're trying to build muscle, lose body fat. Yeah. Well, it, it's very important having that passion because if you don't, then things like the communication aspect or the, so the soft skills of personal training that can be the, the gray areas of the, in the areas between the lines that could make a good coach, a great coach that just transcend how much theoretical knowledge they have, how much textbook knowledge they have. These are the small skills that you'll start to refine, develop, and start connecting with clients even better. And I think that that can go a long way in not only making clients be, you know, feel welcome, feel at home, feel well taken care of with, with your uh, services, but on top of it, make a client stick around for a really long time. Or even if a client stops training with you, all of a sudden, seven years later, they circle back and they're like, yeah, so I'm back. I want to train with you again. Or, hey, I have a referral for you. I'm not going to train with you, but I remember from way back how great that was. So I'm going to give you this referral. And it's like, I hear names that I haven't heard since like 2012. Just like, yeah, oh, that's who you know who started to get you to train with me. That's amazing. You know, how is he doing? How's she doing? Et cetera. So, you know, it's just I think that going back to the question that you had is like those soft skills and being able to refine them. They can go a whole, whole long way when it comes to what lasting and reaching F, uh, impact they can have on your career, on your experience at, with a client and just your personal training uh, journey. Yeah, definitely. And then how about individually when you are working with somebody? How important is it that you find something that they actually enjoy? Because, you know, hey, you and I, like, we could squat, deadlift, you know, any exercise, we could live in the gym. Frankly, we probably do to an extent, right? What about when somebody is maybe trying to get back into the gym? They're not comfortable doing a lot of the things that they see on social media. How do you approach that? Is it important to find like, hey, this is the ideal program for you? Or is it something you gradually have to build up to? Definitely the latter. You definitely have to build up to it. And it's definitely um, a product of how you introduce those subjects in the first place. I saw an interesting post. I cannot remember who it was by on social media just this week. And it was talking about uh, maybe it was Andrew. It was talking about whether or not um, somebody needs to hear an explanation or a correction for certain terms that they might be comfortable using at the beginning. For example, uh, I don't want to lift weights that are heavy. I want to get toned. I just want to tone up. You know, you and I can have that conversation about, okay, well, tone isn't a thing. It's either you're building muscle or you're not. It's either you're getting stronger or you're not. And da, 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 da. But do we have to go through that whole spiel with a client who's brand new, who's pretty novice to this entire world? world of training and the gym life and gym culture and so on or can we because we know exactly what they mean 
So it's more of a question of, okay, do we acknowledge that? Do they make them feel safe and comfortable so that this space is something that they can feel like they can communicate with us and not feel like we're always saying the wrong thing, not feel like we're messing up or we're doing, you know, all that stuff matters. Even when we're giving an assessment initially, are we saying all these areas where you're weak, all these areas where you can't do this or you're deficient here and there, or are we saying, well, okay, you know what? Instead of saying this is weak, let's say, well, we're going to get this stronger. Huge difference just in that one line alone, weakness versus strength. We're playing to somebody's strengths and we're talking about stuff that's going to make them feel better about themselves and make them encouraged to continue uh, coming in. So the, that, that communication aspect with clients and working with clients in that regard, how we approach programming, if they're afraid of heavier weights, how do we bring that into the picture? Maybe we start talking about things from a body weight perspective. Maybe we use a TRX or some kind of suspension training so they get used to handling heavier loads and then we go for something quantifiable like that 30 pound, 50 pound dumbbell for the squat or whatever it is. So all those different uh, approaches are things that I like to employ, I like to use and they can make a client feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is meet people where they at, where they are at. You know, it's if I see this a lot now, especially now as social media has continued to grow and evolve and anybody can cherry pick research and claim that they're an evidence trainer, whatever it is, we can rant on that all day. And if you're speaking above what somebody can understand, they're going to tune you out. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It's about having your language be the first level of communication. Well, not just that your body language is going to be the first level, but the second level is actually the words that you choose. And it could be, hey, I'm going to tone up. Awesome. That's phenomenal. Let's build on that. We understand exactly what they mean. And then going to the point where we're employing the right strategies in order to do that and then gradually educating somebody so they get to the point where, oh, that's what the difference is. Okay, now I understand what I see on social media when somebody says, don't say tone. That way you don't come off like an asshole, but you can actually communicate directly at a level that people understand. I think that's one of the most important things for introducing more people to health, to fitness. There's a, a lot of fear that people face when it comes to going into the gym, if it's something new, if it's something unfamiliar. And the recording of this in December, you know, there's a lot of people in the next 60 days who are going to be trying things that they've never done before or trying to stick with a habit that they haven't been able to. And it's absolutely crucial to develop it to a point or develop the industry to a point where it's a more welcoming overall environment where people don't feel like they're being critiqued at every step. It's about building that confidence. I don't know about you, Lee, but I did a lot of dumb stuff that like reflecting back when I first got in the gym, definitely wrong. And if somebody had a phone on me at that point, they're like, oh, wow, look at this idiot. Like, I would feel terrible. You know what I mean? And so I think it's having that perspective of knowing where people are and being able to meet them and develop the right system that's going to help them gradually improve towards what their goals are. Yeah, the amount of confidence they can build for somebody when it comes from someone who is a veteran or a longtime gym goer. It's sort of like the thing that we, we very first started talking about today. And that is talking about like keyboard warriors and punching up versus punching down. You never see people who are way up here who are punching downwards at people who are, are less successful for lack of a better term. So in the same vein, in the gym, you usually don't see people who are trying to force uh, their thoughts on somebody else or see people who are trying to make fun of other people in the gym. You don't usually see that from, or you almost never see that from the veteran lifters, the people who've been in the gym for a long time. And approaching such ones, even if they seem intimidating just by their stature and by their uh, imposing physique or whatnot, usually they're the most welcoming ones in the gym who are willing to help and willing to spot someone or willing to give them some tips and pointers because they love that sort of thing. And this is what they've been living for such a long time. They'd be happy to share some expertise and help someone along the way. So it's very interesting that uh, the common misconception is that uh, we're the most unapproachable ones when in truth, we'd be happy to help and we would never disrespect other people on the gym floor by humiliating them just for being not great at this yet or not in this game for a long time yet or whatnot. And it's something that's, you, that's worth being spread as far as that, that message. Yeah, I think it's absolutely crucial. And, you know, you saying that has me reflecting back. When I was a kid, you know, I saw my dad being active. That's kind of what got me introduced into the gym. And later on, maybe 12, 13, I would go to like the local YMCA, do some workouts with them. Eventually, my parents would drop me off. And there's always this group of power lifters, classic power lifters. I'm talking like five, six to five, eight, 250 plus pounds, absolute like spark plugs, squatting a house. You know, as a small kid, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And at first I was intimidated. And then I just randomly asked them a question one time. And they were the most open, genuine, helpful people that 
I could ever imagine. It's just, we have this misconception that people aren't open, honest, and maybe it's because everyone's walking out with AirPods in, nobody communicates in the gym the way that they did even 10, 15 years ago. But what would you say to somebody who is saying, you know what, I don't want to go in the gym. I'm not comfortable in there. I don't feel like this is a great environment for me. How would you approach that? I'd first say that every single person in the gym, to some extent, to some degree, is just as focused on themselves, whether it is a veteran lifter who is focused on getting a good solid workout in themselves, or whether it's somebody who is more, who could be equally focused on themselves, but from a self-consciousness perspective, right? Um, there's a lot of that that goes on. There's a lot of egos, but it's all coming back to the same thing as what I look like to everyone else out there, right? That just makes a person, it might make a person feel a little more comforted that they're not alone when it comes to not having a little trepidation to towards what they might look like to the public eye. Now, with that being said, especially based on what we just talked about and how accommodating and welcoming a lot of veteran lifters, a lot of people who have experience in this game, it, it can change their mind. It can change a person's mindset in terms of whether they should be daunted or intimidated or feel right at home when they're at the gym. You know, you do your thing, you ask your questions that you need to ask, you you show proper etiquette and everything's gonna be just fine. And you'll usually be taken under somebody's or a few people's wings as you're there and encouraged to continue going. But oftentimes the hardest part is just taking that initial plunge. But once you do, you usually realize that you, uh, you don't wanna turn back and that good things happen. Yeah, definitely. You have to jump in and experience it. And then you realize that, you know what? Everyone else probably has the same concept in their head. They're so concerned about what everybody else thinks of them that they're not focused on you. They're concerned about how other people might be perceiving them. So the reality is many people, if you have that belief, are going through the same thing or they have previously. And once you get in there and you know, even just have a conversation, be open, take your headphones out, maybe between your sets and talk to somebody, it becomes such a welcoming environment that really helps you lock in that consistency. And that consistency is what compounds over time to really create the long-term structure that's needed to, to transform your body. Yeah, and like uh, another thing I like to say, I've said this in probably my last like three consecutive talks that I've given in, in uh, person, is that what the gym represents to one person might not be what the gym or fitness and training represents to the next person. So it's a little way to kind of like stay in your own zone and not worry too much about what other people think in the sense that for one person, that might be to get a great workout in. For another person, it might be completely due to stress relief. Another person, it might be strictly about mental health and what's going on upstairs right now. You know, so there's a whole bunch of different ways that the gym can be utilized for somebody to better themselves and for the betterment of yourself. And so if you keep that in mind and realize that, you know, everybody's playing their own game at the same time, then it's just another community, just like any other public space that you need to use that should be used. And a lot of good can come from that as well. Yeah, you know, the gym is one of those cool places where like at the same time in an exercise class, you can have somebody who's an ex-con, you can have police and firefighters right over here, you can have somebody who's an executive, somebody who's just getting started in the gym. It's really a melting pot with people who are pushing for that same goal. And the one thing I love about the gym is like, especially when you're in a good environment, is it can be a unifying force between people from completely different backgrounds where everyone is more or less kind of grinding, pushing towards their own physical and personal excellence in a way that's going to be unique to them. And so I, I love that aspect of creating the gym culture. I want to pivot just a little bit here because I've been a reader of your work for a long time. You put out incredible content. You're a great educator and an excellent coach. One thing I've heard you talk about is this idea that the big lifts, the really big lifts are better for guys who aren't in their 30s, aren't in their 40s. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, being an athlete coming from your background and the, I guess tread on your tires, it happens with a lot of lifters. As far as big lifts go, like listen, a squat pattern, a deadlift pattern, an overhead press pattern, all those large movements, a chin-up pattern, at their core, these are good movements. They're important movements and they're essential movements. Some version of them is necessary for pretty much everybody with all things equal. Now, when it comes to now feeding yourself barbell lifts or a 400-pound deadlift or squat or whatnot with a large carriage like a like a barbell or a, a trap bar whatever it is right they become there's you got to start looking at the law of diminishing returns where basically after a certain point of achieving and attaining strength there might not be as much dividends that it pays by comparison to how much risk you might encourage or invite as you go along. So there is going to be a little bit of a trade-off. And no one really talks about what I like to call the collateral damage of strength training, of lifting heavy weights and so on. There's 99% good things that become from lifting heavy and training hard and heavy often and whatnot, especially as a younger person. 
after a lot of time, after lots of wear and tear, you talk to anybody who's been in the gym for 20 plus years, who's lifted heavy for a long time, and they will, they will, you'll never find somebody who says they've never been injured, never ever had one kind of nick or hiccup or anything in their progress. And, you know, those things are inevitable. And it doesn't mean that we shy away from it altogether, but it should mean that we do reassess just how much of it we're doing, especially in comparison to other forms of training, other forms of resistance work and so on, other loads, other volumes, other intensities, and so on. So it's not that the actual big lifts themselves are horrible or that you should never do them. But once you pass a certain point in your training journey, you have more mileage on your body. You have possibly a history of injuries at this point in time in your life. You probably have a little bit more wear and tear on your tendons and ligaments. Um, this is all assuming that your technique has been picture perfect from the from the get-go as well, and you haven't really like thrown off your body with that as well. Just the, the passage of time is what is the real defining factor for whether or not it might be good to take a second look at just how much volume you're applying and attaching to that big squat pattern, that big deadlift pattern, the barbell press pattern, instead of, you know, switching it up to maybe a dumbbell, maybe a safety squat, maybe a, you know, some other version, maybe split stance work for a phase or two or three. It doesn't mean that your gains are going to go down the toilet. It doesn't mean that your strength is going to go to hell either. It means that you're going to diversify your portfolio of training, and you're probably going to give your body the healthy kick that it needs so that mobility is still there, so your joints can take a little bit of a load off as well, and so that you know you could even get some conditioning aspects of things in there too. And it's it's worth it behooves a lot of real uh, uh, veteran trainees and trainers to to think about this. When I have clients now that are let's say over forty, the way that I approach their training compared to when I was a twenty one year old trainer is very different. And I'm not even forty yet. Yeah. But just the passage of time and the experience and like what I've gone through myself makes me realize, oh, you know what? People wake up in the morning stiff. Like that just happens, you know? It takes time before you can, you can't just jump out of bed and start doing 300 pound squats like you could when you were 20 years old, right? And so those kinds of epiphanies, those revelations that happen just by way of living life, they translate themselves into how you train, how you train clients too. And so all that to say that, um, you know, you've got to respect your mileage, and that's what really matters uh, first and foremost. And that might make uh, taking a second look at how much big lifting you're doing, making that uh, making that something that's prioritized. Taking that second look at how much of that you're doing. Yeah, I find a lot of lifters will have this love of the big barbell lifts, bench squat, deadlift, especially not as much now. We're seeing more of a low volume trend right now in terms of content, in terms of the fitness industry. But there was a huge push for a long time of everything with being strength as a huge foundational component, which it still is. But one of the biggest issues I see with lifters, especially if we just want to attach an age to it, you know, over 30, over 40, you know, considering the mileage and all these individual nuances, forcing the same lifts time and time again, even when their body is talking back. You know, like personally, one thing I've noticed, Lee, is I can squat heavy or I can deadlift heavy in the same phase. I can't do both. Hmm. I can do overhead presses with dumbbells heavy or I can bench with a barbell heavy, but I can't do both. Something will act up. And so you, you really start to go in this individual journey where it's like this tool this style of training may have helped me before. I may love this type of training. However, I can't sequence it the same way as I could previously. And so it's about diversifying the portfolio. Hey, maybe we don't have as much risk as we did before. We have to do a little bit more, have a little bit more money in our bonds right here. And it's about finding that individual component. What are some of your favorite lifts, I guess, for a shoulder who has, say, beat up shoulders? Because if there's one body part, that really takes a pounding for the majority of lifters, it's going to be a shoulder. What kind of workarounds will you give to somebody who maybe loves the barbell bench press, but it's not serving them anymore? You know, the shoulder, it's such a loaded uh, loaded area to discuss because of how many possibilities there are in terms of what could be the problem, what lifts might be problematic, and so on. Like in the case of the bench press, I like to think about the synchronicity between your shoulder blades and your shoulder itself, your upper arm, right? So when one moves, the other should move a little bit as well. That's ideal for just the perfect environment for a healthy shoulder. When you do a bench press, you're locking up your shoulder blades so they can't move, and then you're still moving your upper arm to, put, to press the weight. So for the purposes of that exact movement, that is correct technique, and that is safe based on where the load is being bore and so on. However, 
in the big picture, in terms of just from a life standpoint, it probably is going to start making them feel kind of gummy over time. With that being said, I would probably like to go with more dumbbell work, a little bit more cable work, a little bit more, well, a lot more push-up work as well, because those patterns allow for a little bit more freedom of mobility at all the main joints, the shoulder joint, the elbow joint, the wrist joint, all that stuff. And so it's going to be great for a lifter to make gains for, let's say, their shoulders themselves, their deltoids, their chest, their triceps, without having to worry about as much problems in the shoulder joint itself, that rotator cuff. So that would be the first workaround. As far as shoulder issues or shoulder pain in general for pressing in general, my first go-to would be to make sure that their upper back is doing a lot more work than their pressing muscles are. Row patterns, angled patterns. I used to like the the, word of the use of a lot of chin-up or overhead pull-down patterns or chin-up patterns or pull-up patterns, but these days I'm realizing that lots of the time people's shoulder issues are also coupled with a lot of shoulder immobility. And so reaching right overhead to pull something down, it usually exploits that mobility a little bit too much. And even though it's a good intended movement in a pull pattern, it's probably not the right thing for them just based on the range of motion they could achieve. So I like sticking with those horizontal pull patterns, maybe some angled pull patterns as well. And that gets the job done to help uh, make uh, ameliorate the situation, make, make the shoulder feel at least not as bad as it used to, and over time make it get strong again. So those are the kinds of workarounds that I like to use. I love that. The upper back work makes such a big difference in terms of how your shoulders are going to feel. I know this is the same thing when it comes to overhead movements and understanding that, say someone's trying to build a V-taper, they're trying to build those lats up. Your lats, when you're overhead, I mean, this is internal rotation, which is the same exact position that you're in when you're kyphotic behind your desk all day. It's the same exact position when you're in when you're on a bench press. And even though it's a pulling movement, it doesn't really offset that kind of push-pull ratio that you see put out there so often. So it's not that vertical pulling exercise is going to be problematic or it's bad itself, but it, if you have a high volume or a history of unbalanced training, it might just exacerbate some of those existing issues. Whereas hitting those horizontal pulls, a face pull, band pull apart, all these different variations can really help your shoulders. How about knees? And correct me if I'm wrong, you had a pretty serious injury. Was it quad patellar tendon a couple of years ago? Yeah, it was the patellar tendons on both knees. Uh, and that was, now it's gone back almost seven years. It's uh, six years ago. I was, uh, it was May 2017. Um, and so it was a tough one. It was a big one. I was playing basketball and uh, both of them decided to go on me when I was going up for a slam. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a major, major injury with double surgery that had to happen and a big rehab process and all that stuff. So it was a, uh, it was a killer. And um, yeah, I was able to get myself back. And uh, so here we are, but if there's anyone who knows about that sort of thing and coming back from sort of stuff, it's, it's going to be me because uh, I have these 10 inch long scars that I'm looking at right now on each leg to prove it. <laughs> oh, brutal, brutal. It, like mentally, what is it like coming back from that? How old were you when that happened? I was 30. I was 30, 30. Right. So, I mean, I'm a big NFL guy. So everyone say, Hey, you're 30 you're over the hill. And for you, I mean, you've been an athlete, you're seeing all this. I mean, where did you go mentally? Did that just shock you given you're, you're in great shape? Obviously you're strong, you're lean. What was your mindset? How did you have to pivot your approach to training from that point going forward? Yeah. Well, um, you know, it, it makes you dark for sure at the beginning when it happens, right? Because you're, you're asking yourself 10 million questions and then there's the beginning of the process of trying to get back into it, like coming to terms with the fact that, yeah, I'm in this wheelchair right now. Yeah, I'm in straight braces right now. Like I can't even use, I can barely even, I can't stand up yet. There's going to be six weeks before I can stand and walk around and then six more weeks before and so on and so forth. Right. So there was the darkness there, but um, I'll tell you that one thing that was really, really helpful was getting back into the gym as soon as I possibly could. Not so much for the actual exercises of the process of rehab, but for the environment for the community, for all those things that were positive that we talked about about 15 minutes ago. You know, that and seeing a whole bunch of people in the same space working toward a common goal of getting better for themselves is, it's like osmosis. It increases, it, it, it expedites your healing process because it puts you in a positive mindset. And any former athlete or current athlete will, they will give credence to the idea that believing that you're going to win is what's going to help you win not just doing the things that will make you win, but having the mindset too. And so it goes the same way with that or rehabbing from an injury or whatever, is that 
really seeing the positive and trying to stay positive and believing that you're going to get better fast is going to help you get better faster. And so that's what happened with me. And that's what I, I truly accredit, accredit a lot of it to. So that was um, that was a real ordeal. And I think that uh, through the ups and downs, I think that things went pretty positively. And as far as pivoting training went, um, yeah, a lot of the work that I was doing up until I would say I was about 28 or 29 had to do with those big lifts and lifting heavy and squatting heavy and deadlifting heavy and all that good stuff all the good stuff and like i was well over five for a deadlift and i was doing it for reps and it's like after a while you know about a year prior to that then i started asking myself like okay well what about other stuff what about what about training for body weight work or doing better with high rep work or whatever and so i had already had a tiptoe in the waters of that world and calisthenic stuff and so on but i didn't really dive into it yet well one thing that definitely changed after the injury was i made much more of an attention toward that calisthenic work much more attention toward dumbbell and split stance work and just conditioning just general work and athletic style training in addition to big lifts so that the big lifts weren't dominating all of my programming anymore and um, i found that very beneficial and useful and my joints definitely would would uh, be thankful for it you know i can still squat heavy i can still deadlift heavy but it's like i don't need to do that every week there's not any reason for it. And if you get a great workout doing other kinds of training, then it really speaks to um, your maturity as a, as a lifter. Yeah, and I think that maturity, oftentimes it does come on the back end of something changing of an injury you know it's i can't recall the quote itself but never let a tragedy never let you know a big issue go to waste anytime you have an injury one of the most important things that i personally found with myself and with my clients is to reframe it as an opportunity to approach something else because i think the worst thing that most people do is oh my shoulder hurts i'm just not going to go to the gym at all right or my knees hurt fuck it i'm just going to eat whatever i want Right. And when people have that kind of all or nothing component, especially related to injuries, it takes away all these additional benefits that come from being active, being in the community, in the gym, having the mindset and being able to focus on a different approach. Whereas what you did, you're in a wheelchair, but you understand these benefits, obviously, as a coach where it's like, what can I do? Where can I focus? And then using the pain, you know, figuratively and literally of the injury to come back with a smarter approach. I love that. That's incredibly wise. What do you tell people mentally to do when they are coming from an injury? Is it, hey, just take some time off completely? Is it, let's focus on something else that you can improve? What does that conversation look like? The first thing that I usually tell anyone is, and this might be contrary to a lot of uh, popular opinions or belief in the fitness world, is listen to your doctor. I'm not, that's not what my role is. Listen, especially if there was a surgery involved, say, listen to your surgeon. Your surgeon or your doctor, they're going to set certain timelines that probably cover their own asses a little bit as well in terms of making sure that there's a little bit of a pad of room so that, yeah, this person's probably going to be better and able to do this in four weeks. I'm going to tell them to do it in eight weeks type of thing, just so that they don't have any sort of gray zone in terms of possible re-injury or whatnot. And so I like to adhere to that as closely as possible myself. You know, listen to your doctor, listen to your surgeon. If that's the timeline, then I'm not going to push that. There's no benefit. There's absolutely no added value in trying to um, break records when it comes to recovery and how fast you can get back to doing what you're doing. A lot of people wear that sort of stuff as a badge of honor. They'll say, okay, you know, I just had a ruptured bicep tendon last month and in four weeks, look, watch me doing weighted chin-ups with three 45-pound plates. And it's like, and then it's just inevitable that you're going to get hurt again or something. There's no benefit to doing that. You know, if it takes six weeks to get back to step A, that's what it takes. And that should be fine. So that's my first, first, first piece of advice. Always, we're going to abide by what the doctor says, what the surgeon says. These are medical practitioners. And maybe they don't even have all the same lifting experience or all the same lifting knowledge that somebody who's a licensed strength coach or something like that will have. But it's still a medical professional and there's a reason they're saying what they're saying, you know, so... That's where I start with every single time is just listen to your practitioner. Ultimately, right? Listen to the people who are cutting you open in that case and really going through it. I think where a lot of people struggle is like, oh, this thing feels fine, right? It's kind of a classic example of, oh, I'm not sore anymore. I'm going to go train. Well, in the recovery process, there are so many other things that are going on. I'll use the frame of like an acute muscle soreness versus systemic wide fatigue, Let's say you go through and do a heavy deadlift workout. You might not be sore the next day because your volume was very low. Tension might be high, but the volume might be really low. Well, 
what a lot of people don't consider is like there's a ton of stress directly on your endocrine system. Your immune system is probably suppressed. Your tendons, your ligaments, these things all have a lot more recovery timeline than what your muscles do directly. And so I think when people think, hey, I'm not sore, this isn't causing pain anymore, they jump right in without understanding some of the nuance, the things that need to be applied. Um, in the example of an injury as well, somebody might have said, hey, you know what? Oh, I just had my knee scoped. Feels fine. I'm able to do a couple things at the gym. Well, even if it feels fine, you're not going into flexion, say doing something like a deadlift, it doesn't mean that that knee is ready to actually substantially hold on to that load, right? Because there's a ton of compressive stress on something. And in that case, what can happen? Well, pretty soon you start compensating even a one degree difference, then you start wearing out the other one. And pretty soon you have this cascade effect of injuries. And so recovery itself is so nuanced. It's more than just what the thing feels like is how the thing is affected by everything that you do in the gym and beyond. And, uh, you know, even speaking about gym workouts in and of themselves, how are we modifying those workouts? Even if we have the exercise that we can do and that we feel all right doing, the first thing that I like to do is start looking at things from the opposite end. So we like to think about lifting weights. If I'm injured or I've been injured, I like to think more about lowering, right? Those eccentrics and slowing down tempos and adding pauses. You know, it's funny because... For about three years after the, the tendon rupture for my knees, I truly believed that I was never like my new regular squat. My, my new regular squat is a squat with a pause at the bottom. Now it takes added effort for me to sling out of the bottom of each repetition and do squats the way that I would normally have done them before. And I think it's a great habit that I adopted now to have to pause at the end of each of one of my squats because A, it's sort of more of my normal thing and it just shows a little bit more control and it gives my tendons a chance to sort of not go through some kind of crazy elasticity or whatever. It's just more attention to those details of what is the quality of my lowering face? What's the quality and how upright am I sitting at the bottom of the rep? Am I remaining tight? Am I thinking about my bracing at the bottom of the rep? Am I doing things with proper alignment so my knees aren't knocking, etc.? So thinking about those qualities or the, the different attributes that can make a good quality rep or a good quality workout, which for the most part has to do with the lowering phase and how much somebody's paying attention or, or uh, controlling that lowering phase can go a long way for it could even go a long way for a healthy person making gains. So it's something that's uh, yeah. very important. It's just that that workout quality, that lift quality down to each rep. It's a way to make lightweight feel a lot heavier as well. So that's a good thing for your tendons, ligaments, for your joints as a whole. If you're in the habit of lifting very heavy, and that's what brought you to Snap City in the first place when it came to your injury. <laughs> and okay, instead of lifting 300 for eight reps, let's see what five reps with 225 looks like when you're doing a four-second eccentric and a pause at the bottom. Well, game changer, right? And uh, and your joints will thank you for it as well. So there are real other testaments to true strength, and I think that those examples are two of them. Yeah. You and I come from athletic backgrounds where probably a lot of focus was on being strong, being explosive, making the weight move faster. When I do form checks and I see most people training in the gym, two things that I notice across the board, almost nobody pays attention to their tempo. So the style in which they lift, which completely changes actually what's happening within the muscle itself. For example, a slower tempo can create more tension, create, can create a longer time under tension to help you build that muscle more effectively while deloading the joint. And then something even like using pause reps. Personally, like the thing that's changed the most with my training the last five years, I still incorporate some explosive work because I do not want to lose you know, the fast twitch muscle fibers, all that stuff, the all the benefits that come directly with that. But really paying attention to the tempo, really paying attention to my joint positions, especially when injuries are most likely, such as the bottom of a squat, and being really intentional about being smooth in my transitions, not just trying to move weight. I think that's one of the most underrated things that really leads to injuries for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. Um, just lifting with reckless abandon when it comes to how fast they rebound out of the hole when they're doing their squat or, you know, just not having a proper end position. You know, another thing is for sure is, I, I mean, I'll say this with a grain of salt, but not utilizing full range of motion where you can, where you should. You know, it's different to do it with a squat or a deadlift pattern or a press pattern if your goal is to look at zeroing in on one deficient component of your lift or one lagging muscle group or whatnot. If I want to do half reps on the bench press, I'm looking at my front delts and triceps and that's what I'm trying to hit. But it doesn't mean that I don't have the option to go all the way down through my full range of motion because that's what my joint's capable of going through. And so it should be able to handle that with loading too in some capacity. So we want to practice that. And that's what I always believe. We don't ever want to be confined to a shortened and uh, a truncated range of motion. 
we want to have the option to use a shortened or truncated range of motion and the option to use something else. And most people don't earn that option. They, they don't earn the fact or they earn the idea or the ability to have that option. They're stuck half repping, right? Because they're not mobile. So we always want to remember not to forsake our mobility by cutting our range of motion and loading a short range of motion. There's no real purpose to that in terms of keeping your body healthy. It's going to exacerbate existing problems. If you can go all the way down, then that's when you start deciding what you want to do in a given workout. Range of motion is another huge one that I see in people who are already immobile, then they'll start doing their shoulder presses to here, and they're going only to here every single time, or they're bench pressing to way up above uh, a 90 degree angle and whatnot. And it's like, you know, I actually had to talk to a couple of online clients about that sort of stuff when I saw what, what they were doing on their video feedback. And I was like, uh oh, uh, oh, we got to change this. We're going to lower the weight and get you going down to some targets and so on. And then it's going to help you out. But um, it can go a long way in terms of just helping a body feel healthier. Uh, there was a, another post actually I'm thinking about on Instagram that I saw last week that was something along the lines of your knees don't hurt because of lunges or something like that or because of full range lunges or whatnot. Your knees probably hurt because you're not doing full range lunges, you know? And so it's like, it's an interesting way to think about it. And it's a, there's a lot of sense that comes out of a sentiment like that is that you, you, you might be injured because of avoiding these exercises or these full ranges of motion. So don't uh, shy away from them. Instead, try to embrace them and try to do it in your comfort zone first and build off of that. I love that approach. It reminds me of some advice I got early on in my training career. And the analogy here was, <clears throat> how do you become tolerant to snake bite? Small doses of venom, because that's what anti-venom is. And so a lot of people will fearfully avoid certain ranges of motion because maybe this thing hurt before. But a lot of times, the way that we become resilient to pain the way that we improve a movement pattern is to very gradually reintroduce it while we start to build stability, start to improve these different weak points. And then gradually we can start to increase that dosage of what we do. And then we take that something that's a weak point, something that's been problematic and we can eliminate it. Um, I, I love the way that you tied in again, like how, how to use the partials when it's important, when it's not and really earning the right to do so. Something else that you do extraordinarily well is talking about training for tall guys. If you go to a fitness conference, one, you'll see like 30 people in the back, foam rolling or stretching. It's hilarious when you go to a different conference, there's nobody doing mobility work on the floor. Weird. <laughs> um, then at the same time, you also notice that the vast majority of guys are about five foot six to about five foot eight. If you are six feet in the fitness industry, you are considered a giant. Mm -hmm. So I think what that leads to is people see a lot of people kind of forcing the same type of exercises and wondering why, hey, this isn't working for me. Why does training need to be a little bit different for somebody based on their height or even based on their limb length? Yeah, uh, it's much more limb length than height, but even both. Because in the terms of height, let's just talk about absolute height. You take somebody who is doing one lift and you put them next to another person who's doing the same lift, except the first person is five foot six and the second person is six foot six. Let's say that they're doing something that's exactly equal as far as what they can lift relative to their strength, relative to their body weight, the same level of exertion, whatever. You ask the question, who's doing more work? A lot of people think, oh, well, they're doing the same work. They're lifting the same weight. They're doing the same reps, the same set. No, the person who is taller is doing more work when you think about it from a physics perspective of force times distance. They're applying force against that load for a greater distance up and down to get through that rep. And so that alone shows that by the time they're finished a set of, let's say, 10 repetitions or whatnot, they're probably going to take longer to finish that set compared to the shorter lifter. They're probably going to be more burnt out at the end of that set because of the time spent under tension. And if the rest intervals that they're supposed to be asked to do is the same, then that's going to really ask a lot more for that tall lifter because the work to rest ratio by comparison is going to be very different. It's going to be a lot more stilted toward more work, less rest. So a larger or a taller individual is going to have a little bit of a, of a tougher go sometimes, depending on the movement especially, when it comes to weight training and big movement patterns and so on. So we got to take that into consideration. Now, if you, tar if you start talking about limb length, right, you can have somebody who's only five foot nine, for example, who still has a wingspan of somebody who's six foot four, or who still has the long leg length of their inseam of their pants is the same as somebody who's six two or something like that, right? And so from that perspective, the same principles apply because when you start thinking about arm and leg dominant movement patterns like bench press and how much of a big whoosh up and down they got to go through to get to the bottom of each repetition, or a long limbed short torsoed person doing a squat and they have to get to rock bottom and it's taking them, they got to travel down with their hips three feet in order to get to the bottom. That's a big ask for those people, right? 
And so yeah. they would have the same tough goal when it comes to work being performed, when it comes to joint stress, when it comes to the requisite mobility in order to even pull it off. All these things are going to play in heavy for a taller or a longer limbed lifter uh, compared to a lifter who might be more suited for those lifts. So in the book that I wrote with Melody Schoenfeld, Strength Training for All Body Types, that book talks about the differences in proportions, lots of different variations of proportions, long arms, short arms, long femurs, short shins, you name it. And we go through it by a lift by lift approach, right? And we talk about how in sports, if you start looking at the elite categories of a sport and you name the sport, we could talk about swimming, we could talk about track and field, we could talk about gymnastics, we could talk about somebody who's a running back on the football field. You're going to start seeing very, very similar builds across the board at the top of the top level yep. because these are, the, these are the things that are going to play to the strengths that are demands of that sport or that discipline. You're not going to find too many gymnasts or any gymnasts who have the proportions of meat right? You're not going to have people who are very long. You're going to have people who are compact with shorter limbs because of what they're being asked to do. Now, if you look at people who are 10 and 12 years old, usually it's just a game of who is the most developed and who's the most athletic at that age category, right? But when we start getting into elite categories where it's getting down to the skill of the movement rather than just general athleticism, what I'm saying is going to ring very true. So having said that, if you're Bob from accounting or you're Deborah from finance and you're 35 plus and you just have the goal of getting in shape or lifting, being strong and all that stuff, then our sport is lifting weights. That's what we are training for is to make progress in the exact thing that we're training for. And that's it. And hopefully have that carry over to life and, and live our life injury free. So with all that being said, if training is our sport, then shouldn't we start looking at whether or not being elite in certain lifts has a certain body type, has a certain body type that's going to conducive to that sort of thing? What is a squatting body? What is a deadlifting friendly body? What's an overhead press or bench press friendly body? Well, let's take a look at the body types of the people who are really good at that. And you start noticing some trends there as well. What does somebody who's a really good bench presser look like? Do they have arms the length of Dwight Howard or do they have arms that are shorter like a T-Rex? It's obviously going to be the second one because of the physics of it. So these are the things that we start looking into. And then we start giving a few different alternative examples or different hacks or different mods or different tips and tricks in order to make the lift work for you if you don't carry the body type that is conducive to that lift. So what does someone with really long arms do for the bench press? How can they make gains? How can they stay injury free? How can they get strong? How can they build muscle, right? What versions of the bench press work best for them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a great area of study. There's not too much literature out there that represents this uh, area of study at all. It was a passion project, but at the same time, it was a real trailblaze at the same time for us. So we're glad that it's out there. Yeah, I think it's so important. I remember being a young coach, very fortunate. I was like 23, 24. And, um, you know, I was able to see and work with some athletes, some NBA athletes coming off the lockout. And I had never worked with athletes that were 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, seven feet, seven, two. And I'm like, huh, you know, the squat pattern does look dramatically different. And there's no way they're getting to full depth, right? Because as you mentioned first, they might have 25%, you know, more time under tension. So a set of 10 reps, you know, that might be, you know, a dramatically different experience than what something else is. And it doesn't even factor in the additional compressive stress of everything else that they have going on, you know, training for that particular sport. But then I go on, think a little bit later, seeing athletes getting ready for the NFL, sprinters in particular, people who are very fast tend to have a little bit longer femurs. That in addition is going to result to larger hamstring, larger glute, but it's going to make it a little bit different to really get that full range of motion in something like a squat. And so I think what happens is a lot of people will see training of professional athletes and they will make a particular judgment based on what they're seeing with it. Like, oh, that person's not training deep enough or why are they doing this particular thing? And then try to apply it to themselves without understanding the nuance that really needs to be applied to it. And I think that is something that needs to be communicated more effectively instead of just saying everybody needs to bench squat and deadlift because that's what makes you hardcore, which uh, has kind of been put out there for a long, long period of time. Yeah, I agree. Uh, as far as um, force feeding certain lift patterns and as far as looking at athletes as our sort of our, our, our guideline, a lot of times we forget that a lot of these people are also just freaks of nature in the first place. So yes, yeah. they might not have the range of motion and the certain range of motion that might not be compatible with certain lifts. That's where those modifications come in. So, you know, I'll be hard pressed to find too many NBA strength coaches out there who are still using a barbell deadlift from the floor with their athletes in the NBA, right? I can guarantee you that it's not happening. And I know enough 
alpha NBA strength coaches who can confirm that this is not happening anymore, right? The trap bar, the pin pull or rack pull, whatever you want to call it. They're pulling from elevated surfaces. They're pulling with a neutral grip. They're pulling with a cradle surrounding them instead of a bar in front of them, et cetera. All those different things are going to keep an athlete healthy so they can play their sport without, without pain, without injury, right? And so when we take a page out of the good books when it comes to athlete training like that, because it's going to be very sophisticated and smart mods so that they can stay on the court and stay on the field, stay on the ice. And so when we take the page out of their book in that regard, it's the best thing that we could do for ourselves. But at the same time, if we look at only the flashy stuff that's out there, this person training like an animal, training like a beast, doing stuff relentlessly, um, even getting away with poor form and technique, because you see that a lot as well in the athletic world. We have no to doubt. remember... These are athletes who are A, freaks of nature for the most part, but B, they've been doing this sport at such a high level for so long that they can probably get away with 10 times the amount of bad form repetitions because the durability that they've built up in their bone structure, in their tendons, their ligaments, their muscles, they're not sitting at a desk for eight hours a day and then going to the gym at the end of the day for an hour and a half. That's not how their life goes, right? Um, not to mention that most athletes aren't 45 or whatever years old. They're probably like 23 and 26. So no a doubt. Bit of a difference there too as far as wear and tear and mileage and all that stuff goes. But we get the idea here, right? We got to really make sure that we... We, we put a little bit of a, a grain of salt next to the things that we see online when we see footage of athletes training and whatnot. We take the right things away from it because there's a lot of good to be taken away from it. But we could also misuse a lot of the, the things that we take away from it and, uh, you know, misapply it to us when we shouldn't really fit the same category. No doubt. Athletes are the best compensators. They really are across the board, you know? And again, like you mentioned, they're freaks of nature. So trying to judge on that is like, hey, how come I can't do math like Elon? Like, what is this? Come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Awesome. Lee, this has been incredibly helpful. Where can we find out more about you? Where can we learn from you? First place, I'll say social, of course. So Coach Lee Boyce across the board, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me there. And then, um, you know, you can get a hold of the book, Strength Training for All Body Types. That's available on Human Kinetics website that's available on Amazon, Amazon Canadian, Amazon USA, and I believe internationally as well. It's available in most countries, so you can find it there. And um, yeah, those are the two main things. Of course, my website, leeboyce.com, where you want to check out some editorial pieces on my blog. And then I have a lot of stuff that I have to say about the industry and the sociocultural aspect of fitness and all that stuff. And I have a massive, massive archive on that website of all the articles that I've written and counting all the articles I've written for different publications across the board. They're all there somewhere. So you go into that articles section and you can get lost in it because there's so much stuff. You are truly prolific as a writer. And one thing I love about written content, my bias coming in here a little bit, is it allows you to get past the five to sec seven seconds real kind of culture that we have right now and really start to understand the nuance and be able to apply things. And when you do that and learn from coaches like Lee, you can apply that and use that filter anytime you're seeing something on social media and thinking, is this really relevant for me? Is this part of the piece of the puzzle for me? Or is it something I should forget? Yeah, man, I completely agree. So I'm glad to just be out there doing the thing and, and trying to contribute the best way that I can. And uh, it helps that I really love what I'm doing. No doubt. Hey, it's Eric here again. Now, there are three ways that I can help you look great naked. Number one, if you want to grab a free copy of the Look Great Naked Protocol to help you lose body fat without counting calories, then go to bachperformance.com backslash free training. Number two, if you're a busy guy looking to build muscle, then I recommend checking out our Minimalist Muscle Blitz, which has helped over 1,000 men build muscle without living in the gym. Just go to minimalistmuscleblitz.com. The link will also be available in the show notes. Or number three, and last, if you want to work with me directly and get the best results possible, apply at bachperformance.com backslash coaching to look great naked without living in the gym. Until next time, my friend. <laughs>